So I really hate to admit this, but I am terrible with direction. Can anybody join me in that? My wife can certainly give an amen to that. I'm awful with directions. We'll go and visit a family and you go to their house for two hours and I won't be able to find my way back out of the neighborhood. I mean, I've got a Google map my way out of the neighborhood. We just got there two hours ago. I have no sense of direction. Now, of course, if we go on a longer trip, I always plug the maps into my phone. It's a wonderful invention. But I still do this thing. I don't know if y'all ever do this, where the map will tell me at some point to do something, and I'll say, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And then, you know, 10 minutes later, we're going seven miles an hour down a dirt road behind a hay baler. See, I need the map. I need the map, and I need to stick to the map. My, the truth about me is, and some of y'all may be really good with direction, very natural to you, but not me. My opinion gets me lost all the time. The map is what keeps me straight because the map reflects reality. My opinion is just my opinion. My memory, even, it can be very fuzzy being places I've been before, but the map reflects reality, right? Well, y'all, as we look at Colossians 2 today... We get a a picture of this in spiritual terms. The the Apostle Paul is is writing to this church, Colossae, almost 2,000 years ago, but of course he's writing to the church, to us. In totally relevant terms, Paul is writing to us as we sit here today, and Paul is, in a sense, laying down a map for us. we, We just walked through, the last couple of weeks, we walked through Colossians chapter 1, where Paul spends all of his time celebrating the greatness of Jesus, how wonderful and divine and glorious Jesus is and all that he's done for us. Here in chapter 3, coming up in a few weeks, we're going to see in chapter 3, Paul's going to give us commands concerning our behavior. But here in chapter 2, Paul's concern is laying down a roadmap against competing religious ideas and philosophies. The church in Colossae was surrounded by false teaching. All of the early churches, especially in the Greek world, were surrounded by false teaching, competing religious opinions. And so Paul, even though he's imprisoned in Rome and he cannot be in Colossae face-to-face with these people, he's doing the next best thing. He's writing them a letter and he spends an entire chapter here, chapter 2, helping them battle out the distinction between truth and error. And so, y'all, we're going to spend maybe three weeks here in Colossians chapter 2 as we walk through the book. I hope you'll see this, that the issues Paul brings up are not unique to only that situation back then in a different part of the world. Absolutely relevant for us. Uh, And I I probably don't need to convince you of this, but y'all, right where we sit in this time and place, the lines between truth and error are fuzzy, maybe fuzzier than they've ever been. The, uh, the accessibility we have to different thoughts and ideas and philosophies is greater than it's ever been because we have something called the Internet, right? And on the Internet, any idea, any belief can be shared and promoted and put out there for us, and it's easy for us potentially to lose our sense of direction, that where God potentially has made things very clear and very straight, uh, we can make those things very fuzzy and winding, because we have access to so much information and so much thought. And so what we see at the beginning of this chapter, we see Paul's seriousness about this issue. The difference between fact and fiction, truth and error for Christians is not uh, incidental stuff. It's um, It's not for us a casual thing. It is absolutely central to who we are and how we live. 
And we see that in how Paul addresses this, this issue. Look with me again at verse 1. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, this is a, a nearby city and church there, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that there your, our hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Paul is using, when Paul says, I struggle on your behalf, he's using Olympic language. This is gladiator language. What he's saying is, I'm being stretched to my limits for you. I'm exerting myself. I'm aching. I'm sweating over you. Um, Like an athlete straining to finish uh, across the finish line and to win a race. And Paul says part of the reason he struggles is that he cannot be with them personally. Paul is writing the letter to the Colossians. He's writing it from uh, under house arrest in Rome. More than likely, he's chained to a guard. He had some manner of freedom, we see at the end of Acts. But Paul is in prison. He cannot do the one thing he desperately wants to do, which is to go to Colossae, to go to Laodicea, and to see these people face-to-face, to encourage them, and to combat this, this false teaching in person. And so Paul does the one thing he can do. He says, I pray. I struggle in prayer on your behalf. Now, this is a quick point, but y'all, I was I, very convicted on this as I studied this scripture this week. When Paul talks about how he prays, he does not use flippant kind of language. Uh, he says, I struggle for you. And I, I just, by confession, I rarely struggle in prayer for other people. Like an athlete straining to get across the finish line, exerting myself, sweating, pleading with God for other people. Paul is saying, I'm praying for you as if my own life depends on it. These are people he's never met. And yet he knows what they're up against. He knows the, uh, the pluralistic uh, teaching that's all around them. Every teaching is trying to get a place in their life. And Paul is praying that they won't fall victim to it. And he's, he just he aches for them. Uh, Y'all remember this, perhaps. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was eventually arrested and then crucified, he went into the garden to pray, and Luke tells us that Jesus was sweating drops of blood. He was in such agony, he was struggling in prayer to such a degree that his body responded in a way that is absolutely um, uh, magnificent. He sweat blood. When Paul says, I pray for the churches, he's not throwing up casual prayers before dinner. He says, I struggle on your behalf. And so, y'all, when I pray, and maybe this would be relevant for you too, when I pray, typically I pray very casual prayers. That doesn't make them, that doesn't make them less viable prayers. God hears and answers according to his goodwill, right? But man, I, do I care enough to really struggle for you, for others, um, that I would have this heart and this attitude like Paul? That's a conviction for me. Maybe it is for you too. To struggle in prayer. I don't really know what that's like. Um, But we see the content of this desperate prayer. What's he praying for? This is interesting. In the midst of the false teaching, 
Paul's first concern is not knowledge. Knowledge is certainly important. We'll get there. But listen to what Paul's first concern is, what he prays for. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. And I want you to be knit together in love. Do you see that? Y'all, all throughout the Bible, when the people of God encounter difficult things, in this case, they're encountering false teaching. No one around them believes what they believe, and they're trying to force their own beliefs upon them to change them. It's a tough situation. In the Bible, when people are up against the wall facing tough situations, it is never biblical counsel for us to get alone and hunker down and try to fight that battle solo. The model of the Bible, the model of the New Testament is that we get together as churches, as the community of faith, as the people of God, God's household, his family, and we fight together. That's why the Bible constantly tells us to be unified to bear one another's burdens, to encourage each other, to build one another up. And that's what Paul is praying. Before he he concerns himself with what they know, he's concerned about who they are as a church. I want you to be bound together, encouraged in heart, knit together in love, like a chain-link fence. What makes a chain-link fence so strong? It's woven together. And that's how the church is. We're stronger together. We're better together. Before we know the truth and stand on the truth solo, Paul says, I want you to be together in this because you'll be stronger as a result, right? And then verse 22 says, he says, because you've been encouraged and knit together, you will attain to, my prayer, attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding and a true knowledge of God, which is found in Christ himself. You know what what Paul's saying right here? The deeper you dig into the truth of Jesus, not just smarter, you get smarter, you get more knowledgeable, sure, but he says the stronger and richer you become. You don't just get knowledge. You get that too. But he says the deeper you dig into Jesus and into the truth of Jesus, the stronger and richer, wealthier spiritually you become. And I hope we see this, that what what Paul is is advocating for here is not just knowledge for its own sake. It's not mere knowledge. Knowledge is important. It's necessary for us as Christians. But Paul is praying for what he calls a true knowledge. And we see that in different letters throughout the the New Testament. True knowledge, not just any kind of knowledge, because it's a true knowledge that comes in the uniqueness of knowing Christ. Y'all, we may take this for granted. I do the uniqueness of being a Christian, that you and I are not saved by believing certain teachings and philosophies. You and I are not Christians because we just believe certain teachings and philosophies. We are saved by believing in a person, not just what Jesus said, as important as it is, but the person of Jesus himself and what he's done for us. That's what saves us. He saves us, not just that we subscribe to what the words on the page say, but the very person of God came down to earth, died on a cross, rose from the grave, and we put our faith in him. And so Paul says in verse 3, in Christ, because we know Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not in the Bible are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's That's understood. And we'll talk more about the Bible in a minute. But before we say, I'm a Christian because I believe the Bible, well, that's true. That's true. But what makes you a Christian 
is that you have put your faith in Christ, the very person of God who come to save you. And it's in him, in Christ, that are hidden all the, the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, when Paul says that those things are hidden in Christ, uh, that doesn't mean that they're off limits to us. We don't mistake that. What it means is that those things are found in Christ, that they're stored up in Christ. Uh, if you had a great treasure, you wouldn't scatter it abroad. You wouldn't just leave it around, right? You would store it up. You would put it in a special place. And see, that's what the Apostle Paul says to us. All the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge are stored up, are held together in Jesus, in Jesus. Now, I, let's be clear on something here, that when Paul says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he doesn't mean most. He doesn't mean some. He says all, all, okay? Anything that God desires for us to know about him, anything that God desires for us to do according to what we know, it's in Christ. It's found in Christ. It's not somewhere else outside of him. Uh, why, did, why should that matter to us? Y'all, I, I read an article this past week, interesting headline. It just drew me in. It said, why Americans are flocking to Buddhism. I don't know a whole lot about Buddhism, so I thought, you know, I, I need to read this article. I need to be informed on this. Very, very interesting, though, in actually reading through the article, that the people that were being interviewed, the people that the article was about, were not coming to Buddhism wholesale. These were not Americans, Western people like us. They were not coming to Buddhism because they wanted to build their lives on Buddhist beliefs and practices. No. They were coming, and you'll know these terms because they're so popular, they were really coming to Buddhism to get meditation and mindfulness. They were trying to get certain things out of it that they thought would help them to escape the frantic chaos of life and to find some peace. They, they wanted meditation and mindfulness. So they were coming to Buddhism really to get certain specific things from it. They didn't want the whole thing. And the article actually talks about what this is called. This is called a life hack. And if you ever heard that term, a life hack, where you get a certain bit of information and you incorporate it into your life to make life better, easier, for you. Okay? And so the, the, these people are coming to Buddhism not to get the whole thing. No, they, they're not interested in that. They don't want to give their lives to it. They just want the helpful parts that they think will help them along the way. Now, nobody's ever done this with Jesus, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> Y'all, here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We take, or we try, I mean, I don't know if this is, you're guilty of this. We, we, there are certain things about Jesus we like, and there are other things maybe not so much. And we try to do the same thing with Jesus. We life hack Jesus. We try to think there are certain beliefs, there are certain commands, certain ways of, of Jesus relating to people. I like that. I want that. And so we might be prone to do the same thing that these people in the article are doing. If this is going to help me, then I'll just take it, right, and add it to the fray. Everything else that's in my life, I'll make that a part of it too. You know, the, the, and this should come as no surprise to us, but Paul is very clear on this. You can't life hack Jesus this way. I'm not sure how Buddhist leaders feel about what's going on there. I can tell you, though, as a, as a pastor, as a Christian, um, I can say this definitively. You can't, you can't pull out specific things about Jesus that we like when Paul says very definitively, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Okay? Not some. If it were some, listen, if Jesus came to give us some wisdom and knowledge, 
then very naturally and appropriately, we would have to find other knowledge and wisdom elsewhere, right? We'd life hack him in to the best we can and, and fill in the rest of the gaps, right, as we so choose. But no, if Jesus Christ is the totality of wisdom and knowledge, then that means not only do we not pick and choose with him, but on, in a positive sense, it means you can rest your entire life on him. If Jesus, is, if Jesus contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that means there's nothing in this world outside of him that you truly need, and you can rest securely on him. Everything you need is found in him, um, to know him and him alone. And so uh, if, if, if we could say this is the purpose of life, this is, this is what it means to have life, eternal life, Jesus framed it this way in John 17. He said, this is eternal life that my disciples might know you, the Heavenly Father, and know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's, eternal life is not merely getting to heaven when we die. It's knowing God, having communion with God. And in Christ, we get that in its fullness. And so, so what Paul is calling us to here is this. A knowledge, yes, but it's not just knowledge right for its own sake. It's a life that is rooted in Jesus Christ. Because in him is found all knowledge and wisdom. Everything that God created us to know and experience, we find it in Christ. Okay. Why is Paul so adamant that we're secure in this? Look at verse 6. 4, rather. Sorry, verse 4. He says in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Now we see his point. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline in the stability of your faith in Christ. If everything we need to know is bound up in Jesus, Paul says, no smooth-talking false teacher should be able to, to, to be able to knock you off track. No matter how persuasive the argument may be, you ought to be able to stand firmly on what you know, because it's not just what you know, it's who you know, right? And so don't let somebody, no matter how... how uh, nice they sound, no matter how much truth is sprinkled into what they say. Don't let anybody knock you off of what you know to be true. Uh, have you guys ever seen The Music Man on Broadway? Or maybe you've seen the movie The Music Man. You need to see it. It's a great musical about a guy named Harold Hill. Harold Hill is a con man who finds himself in this little uh, Midwestern town called River City. And he's walking around the town square looking for a way to con the townspeople. They don't know who he is. And he sees his opportunity. He looks over and notices a brand new billiard hall right there on the town square. So Harold Hill gathers all the people of the town together on the square, and he starts to tell them about how these pool tables are going to corrupt their poor children and turn them into criminals. And he sings a song. He says, you got trouble, folks, right here in River City. You got trouble with a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and P stands for pool. And by the end of the song, they're all up in arms. They've completely bought in. They're ready to tear that billiard hall down and do something else. Tell us what to do. He's got them conned. Now, y'all, when, when we see it played out like that, it's very funny. Um, but what Paul is talking about is not funny. Paul is absolutely serious. Remember, he struggles on behalf of these people for this very reason. That Paul is saying uh, false teaching can be persuasive especially if there's enough truth mixed into it to make it sound palatable. And so a true Christian faith, Paul says, comes with a certain posture. 
Before you end up in the middle of something that you're not really sure if it's true or not, Paul says there's a certain posture that comes with being a Christian, and he actually rejoices in verse 5, middle of verse 5, I rejoice to see your posture, your good discipline, and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul's affirming that these people have a, a readiness to combat what's coming at them. And he uses right here, earlier we saw uh, Olympic language, gladiator kind of language, struggling. Right here he uses a military term. He's speaking of the Colossian church as if they are a, a united front. Soldiers all standing, prepared for battle. They're not going to be caught off guard. And of course, they're standing together, right? When he says, your stability in the faith, he, he, he means y'alls. He's speaking in the plural here. Y'all together are standing on the ready to combat these things, and I rejoice in that because it requires a certain posture. We have to be a kind of people that if something comes after us or if we stumble upon something on the Internet, a belief system, a way of viewing our faith that maybe is different, that's not orthodox, then if we have a certain posture, of course, we can treat it wisely instead of falling into it. Y'all, a great example of this, you, you may, if you uh, read through Acts and our Bible reading plan in the last couple of weeks, um, Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul and his companions, they're preaching the gospel in a city called Thessalonica, but an angry mob drives them out of town. And the next place they go, after they're kicked out of Thessalonica, they go to a little place called Berea. And of course, they begin preaching the gospel there in Berea. And listen to what happens in Berea. This is from Acts chapter 17. Luke tells us, now he says, Now the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. What made the Bereans noble-minded? They heard this new teaching. And y'all, they had never heard the gospel of Jesus before. It was entirely new to them. They heard this new teaching. It was exciting. It was interesting to them. But what did they do? They ran back to their Bibles. In this case, their Old Testament. They went back to the Bible to examine what they had heard against the standard of what they knew was true. They measured it up against what they knew was true, against the map of reality. They didn't trust Paul implicitly. He was a stranger to them. They weren't won over by, by persuasion, by smooth talk. They studied the word to see if the gospel was true, to see if it fit. Now, that's what it means in Luke's estimation to be noble-minded. And that's the challenge for us as Christians. We have to be a noble-minded people that we don't buy into what we hear just because it sounds good. Y'all, and I, I mean this, even what your pastor tells you is not true just because I say it. I hope it's true. I think it's true. If, it wasn't, if I didn't think it, I wouldn't say it. Um, I hope you see me as, as, a, as a credible person in speaking God's word. But listen, just because I say it doesn't make it true. We are a people, listen, we are called to be a people that when we hold this Bible in our hands, we don't just hold it to admire it. We hold it to be students of it. God has given us a wonderful gift the printed word that we can hold in our hands. We have to be students of this word. Anything that we hear or perceive, anything we're told, ought to always be laid down over the map. What is real? What is true? We need to be Berean in that sense. And y'all say this. This is, this, is, this is true for a lot of things. It's certainly true as Christians with our Bibles. The fastest way for you and me to be deceived 
is to be ignorant of what is actually true. The fastest way to be deceived is to be ignorant of what is true. If we don't know what the Word says, then we have no, we have no ability to combat what comes our way. Um, can we go to an extreme with this? Uh, you, you, I'm going I'm to mention two kinds of people, and I, I, I can be guilty of both, by the way, but you pro- you'll know what I mean when I say this. Can we take this, this call to be biblically knowledgeable to, to wrong extremes? There's a kind of person that knows a lot about the Bible, but it makes him arrogant. It turns him into a know-it-all, and now his mission in life is to go around correcting everybody else, right? Arrogant. Knows a lot of Bible, but doesn't really have a heart that's gracious. Uh, There's also the kind of person that maybe knows a lot of Bible, but they're very cold and crusty and joyless. They're not happy people. They know a lot of stuff. But there's nothing about their life that you would want to imitate. See, listen, when, when, when the Apostle Paul talks about knowing Christ, standing firm on what is true, if it's only mere knowledge, then, then of course that's going to make us arrogant, cold, lifeless, joyless, religiously legalistic people. Because it's just knowledge. The more you know, the better you are. And other people need to keep up. But that's not what it is to know Jesus. The more you know Jesus, listen to this, the more you know Jesus, the deeper you go in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, um, the warmer and more joyful we become. And we see that as we close this out in verse 6. What kind of character does the knowledge of Jesus really produce? Look at this. Therefore, verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, therefore live in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. Y'all, the, the, the Christian faith is built on truth. You, you don't become a Christian just because it works for you, I hope. You're a Christian because you believe it's true. We stand on what is true. But it's a truth that gets applied to the real stuff of life. It's a truth that gets applied to the heart. It can't remain only in the head. It's got to be operating in our lives. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, Paul says. Which means you devote yourself to Christ. You devote yourself to being the kind of person that at the deepest level of my heart, I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to just admire him, but I want my character to reflect him. I want to be a light to the world that reflects Jesus, and that changes us. And that's why in verse 7, Paul says that we are firmly rooted, and now we're being built up and strengthened. You know, that's the, the, the illustration he's giving us is a tree. A tree that if, if you've got a, a, a significant, we've got a really significant tree in our backyard. I mean, it's, it's, it is an old, strong tree. Um, its roots go, I, don't, I, I, I hesitate to even guess how deep those roots go, but because those roots are deep, because that tree has rooted itself deeply, it is healthy and it grows and it produces. And the, the elements can't do anything to it. The outside forces can't do anything to that tree because it's so strong and deeply rooted. That's what Paul wants for us. Um, and really, he's kind of borrowing here, I think, from Psalm one. Maybe my favorite psalm, Psalm 1, which says, 
The man who delights in God's word and who meditates on God's word, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever that person does, he prospers. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's not merely subscribing to words on a page. This is what I believe. That won't change your life. It's rooting yourself in him, in Jesus Christ, and being built up in him. And therefore, the knowledge is applied to how we live. Uh, In Psalm 1, it says that we bear fruit in our season. Paul mentions a a specific fruit that I think is really interesting that he put this here at the end of verse 7, the last thing in in our scripture today. He says, as you're deeply established in your faith, what's going to happen? You're going to overflow with gratitude. That's his prayer. You're going to overflow with gratitude. Uh, the, the, the longer you walk with Jesus, listen, you don't get cold and rigid and arrogant and legalistic. No, Paul says, the longer you walk with Jesus, the deeper you root yourself into him, the more grateful a person you become, the more humble and joyful you become. How is that possible? Because the deeper we get into Jesus, the more we start to recognize the truth that apart from him, I am nothing at all. I was nothing when he came upon me. I had nothing to add to my salvation. I had nothing about me. No good potential in me that Jesus said, I've got to have him. No, Jesus saved me in spite of me. He saved you when you were at your worst. You were nothing apart from him. And yet in Christ, Paul says, we have all the riches of God's glory and mercy and love forever. When we begin to really take that truth to our hearts, apart from him, I am hopeless. In him, I have every good thing of God for all eternity. What does that make us? Grateful. Joyful. You don't get cold and crusty and joyless and arrogant. You get, it warms you over and you become a grateful person. How could you not? So y'all, as Paul gives us this roadmap here as to why it's so vital that we know Christ deeply and that we know his truth and stand upon it, um, y'all, we, we, we recognize this. I, I said this at the beginning. We live in a world of countless philosophies, belief systems, and truth claims. In every sphere of life, educational, political, you name it, how you're supposed to raise your kids, you, anything that, that is has a, 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 a massive amount of, of thought and belief and philosophy attached to it, right? Well, Paul says when it comes to Christ... I'm laying the map down for you so that you will not deviate from what is real, so that you will stand firmly on what is true, Um, not knowledge for its own sake. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul says, knowledge by itself makes arrogant. It puffs up. That's why we need love, because love edifies. You need knowledge and love, right? When Paul says it's found in Jesus Christ, um, hear me on this. Yeah, And I I know if you, you know, You may say, duh, when I say this, okay? But hear me on this. When Paul says that all of this is rooted in, found in Jesus Christ, that means that we're not Christians because we believe in certain ideas or that we try to behave in certain ways. That's not what makes you a Christian. It's that you have believed in a person. It's that you've put your faith in a person, the very person of God, Jesus Christ. We are not saved by knowing things. We are saved by knowing Jesus. And that's where we root ourselves. Um, Only then are we going to be strong enough together to combat 
the ideologies that surround us. Because everything sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? And frankly, a lot of people will say, Jesus is good, you can have Jesus, you just need more than Jesus. And we can be drawn into that too. You need Jesus plus something else. But right here, Paul says, no, everything you need is found in him. And that's why when we commit ourselves to knowing Jesus Christ, we don't just get truth, we don't get only truth, we get a vibrant relationship that changes our hearts. That's why Paul says, in all of this, I pray that your hearts are encouraged, that you're knit together in love, that you have the full assurance of knowledge. That's not just knowledge, that's security. That changes you, changes how you view the world. And then lastly, he says, you have an overflowing gratitude. To know Jesus is not just to know things, it's to know a person who can change everything. And that's why we stand firm on him. There's nothing else in this world you can hear. There's nothing else this world has to offer you that can even enter into the same conversation with him. As a Christian, you stand firmly today on the one who, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He has delighted to pour them out through his death and resurrection. We have a map that reflects reality. The world of opinion is fighting for a voice in this conversation. But Jesus Christ has spoken loudly, the loudest, through his blood shed and through his body raised. And now we know him and we can be secure in him. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you this morning uh, protect us, Lord, from the easy, easy temptation to be content with ignorance, to be content to own a Bible but not to read it? Would you give us a heart that wants so badly, more than anything, we want to know you and stand firmly on you and your truth? Would you also protect us this morning, Lord, from the temptation to look into your Bible in a way that makes us arrogant, in a way that makes us crusty and legalistic, as if knowing truth is, is all that really matters? And show us the better thing this morning, Lord, that it is, it is knowing you. In you, Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I love that, that phrase. We are deeply rooted and built up in you. And that's what makes all the difference. So Lord, would you, would you bind us together? I pray this morning that we would be encouraged in our hearts, that we would be knit together in love as a church, so that we would stand in the full assurance of the truth of Jesus Christ to be a people who don't just know interesting religious trivia, but we know a Savior who, had, who loved us and gave himself for us, and that our lives would be so absolutely different because of what we stand upon, that, that we have a true reflection of reality, a map that does not rest on our opinion or anyone else's. We can know and trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that if, if, we're, if we're prone to want to just hack into Jesus and get some of the nice things out of him to put into our lives, that we would see today that he doesn't give us that option, and we shouldn't want that. We should want all of him, all the grace, mercy, and truth, and justice, and righteousness, and holiness that we find in Jesus. Lord, bring him entirely to us. 
that we might know and follow him with everything we have. And we ask it in his mighty and wonderful name. Amen. Amen.